How would you feel if you decided to pursue your genealogy, the second most popular hobby in the country, and in order to do that, you had to go to a juvenile court judge and first prove that you were worthy to do your search and then get permission from other adults to be your intermediaries between you and the information about you. Rich Erlob, an adoptee and an activist, asked this question as he helps adoptive parents like me feel what it's like to navigate some states' laws around adoption secrecy. He notes, you're presumed guilty, not innocent. You are presumed to be a homewrecker. Now, we may say things are better today in this era of openness, but Rich connects the dots from where we have been to where we are now. Let's hear from Rich about shame and secrecy versus truth and transparency when it comes to the people we are raising, our adoptees. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Long View, a podcast brought to you by Adopting.com. I'm your host, Lori Holden, author of The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption and longtime blogger at LavenderLose.com. I'm so excited for our guest today. This is Rich Erlob. Rich has dedicated himself for more than 20 years to support and effective advocacy for the interests of adults impacted by relinquishment and adoption. He currently serves as president of Adoption Search Resource Connection. Relinquished and adopted at three weeks old, Rich located and connected with his family of origin 25 years ago. Rich has testified before legislative committees and presented and facilitated at various conferences nationwide. He's been interviewed for local and national radio, television, and newspaper stories. He was instrumental in getting laws changed in his home state of Colorado, which is also mine, so that adoptees born in this state now have the same access to their birth records as non-adoptees do. Rich, welcome. Thanks. Great to be with you, Lori. I'm so excited to talk with you today. This is such an important topic for people like me because even though everybody listening may have different stories, what so many of us have in common is that we're raising or we hope to have the privilege to raise an adopted person, an adoptee. I want to discuss some things today from an adult adoptee perspective. It can be hard for hopeful or new parents who are at the baby stage of things to look ahead to their baby, their child, being a teenager and maybe even a young adult. So let's talk about issues that will affect those who are now babies or children. How about starting by briefly telling us your story of becoming an adoptee activist and what exactly that means? Well, I, I kind of fell into it because uh, I hit a point in life where I wanted to know more about my origins and where I came from and who I looked like, typical, question, typical questions that come up for adoptees. And when I went to a group then called Adoptees in Search, I found out that records were sealed. And uh, there was a big nationwide initiative at that time that would have sealed original birth certificates from adop adult adoptees for 99 years. So I got on the bandwagon and decided, hey, we've got to fight this. This is not right. And not only did we want to resist that uh, really terrible idea, but we also wanted to move the ball down the field toward getting access to our own records once we were adults. So, so that, me, that passion really drove me. Let me ask you something there, because I think from where I was at one point in time when closed adoption was the way we did things, why is that wrong? Why is it wrong to seal records? Well, it's it's a nuanced question, and thank you for asking it. Um, I absolutely support 
sealing records from the general public. There's no reason that anybody should be able to walk in and find out the details of your adoption, whether you're an adoptive parent or an adoptee or a relinquishing mother, that should stay private. But within the parties themselves, that's kind of a different level of um, importance of access to information. And from a, there's a lot of different ways that this is framed. I like to frame it in, the, in terms of truth and transparency and adoption. Um, most people are not corrupt adopt baby sellers, but it does happen in the world. Most people have great motives about why they want to adopt. Um, and, and I honor that. At the same time, truth and trans without truth and transparency, really the opposite is shame and secrecy. And so when you create a system based on shame and secrecy, that creates psychological ripples, legal ripples, uh, all kinds of implications down the road that people who back in the, t in the days these laws were sealed, uh, say in the 30s and 40s in, in the US, they weren't really thinking long term about the impact. Yeah, and also when you have that shame and secrecy and close, doing things in the dark, the ability to do things in the dark, that's when the bad things can happen, when there isn't that transparency in the process. Absolutely. Transparency creates accountability and it remove and secrets imply there's something wrong. Um, I'm so many adoptees I've interacted with through the years have said, so what, what was so horrible about this blessed event <laughs> that it had to be sealed away and I can't know who I am and, and what my roots are. Mm. Uh, when I've, when I've testified before legislative committees, one thing I pointed out is that uh, I've kind of posed it as a question, but why, why is genealogy normal for everybody except adopted people? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, it's, it's, it's a basic human instinct. Uh, one, one minister at a church I went to years and years ago said, life's three biggest questions are, where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And if you can't answer number one, it's a lot harder to get to number two and three. And we see adoptees really struggle with that over time. And that really speaks to me as an adoptive parent, especially of teens, because in those teen years, they're doing that identity building. And to the degree that I can help them find all of their pieces, have access to all of their pieces that I can't find, you know, that helping them pull it all together. I think that's a really, and, and how much they want it. It helps me to know that. Yeah, I'm a fan of Eric Erickson's uh, develop, developmental tasks. Uh, he himself was an adoptee. And he points out that in the teen years, that's really when you, you start to develop abstract reasoning. And a lot of kids who are seemingly very happy and well-adjusted as adoptees, uh, apart from maybe some crying jags at age seven and eight when children develop to learn the ability to grieve, um, those, those early to mid-teen years can be really difficult because you can, you can conceptualize the abstract question. Um, a common thing adoptees in my generation were told was, she loved you so much she gave you away. Wow, what does that say to you? Now think about that as an organizing principle for your life and relationships. <laughs> um, and and the, the notion of the noble sacrificing birth mother is 
a, a shallow, broad brush at best. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've come a long way, but I think that's where the the rise in open adoption has been driven by the recognition of how in many ways, even though it's often harder for the adoptive parents, it's really better for the adoptee to integrate their truth from the beginning. And it's also, uh, and, and not all birth parents want to stay in an open adoption. And I can get that. It's hard to grieve and hard to watch your baby being raised by somebody else. Um, but at the same time, that spirit of openness, that spirit of transparency, that nobody is anybody's dirty little secrets. Nobody is, is, anything that has to be sealed away by the government and hidden from the very object, uh, i.e. the adoptee, who all this fuss is about, it, um, it really sets a, a whole different culture and a different stage for human development and honesty and relationships. I, people who've attended our group, and I, I can't count how many this has happened to, have arrived shattered in their 50s after attending a funeral when a cousin walks up and says, so now that your parents are dead, are you going to look for your birth family? Never having been told they were adopted. Oh my gosh. And there's no, shame. Yeah. And, and there's, there's no way to resolve that. You can't have that question. And all you do is spend the rest of your life saying, so what else did they lie to me about? Right. It rocks your very foundation of trust. And the irony is that, that, in that time, a lot of people were well-intentioned with this. They were saying, well, let's just, let's just create this normative family and we're going to seal up these records. The, the interesting history is that the records were sealed not so, not so much to protect a birth parent identity as to prevent the birth parent from finding out the adoptive family identity and trying to come back and reclaim the child. And in an open adoption, when everybody knows who everybody is and there's informed consent and people have been counseled through a lot of the uh, emotional implications, again, that wall is taken down. Not that there's not grief, not that there's not trauma for the child and everybody involved, not that there's loss in the midst of the gain, but the, the whole culture that was set just by these often well-intentioned but short-sighted laws created um, ripples or tidal waves of the, that made it for a very, very unhealthy system. Yeah, I took us off on a tangent talking about why it's wrong to close records. So let's get back to your um, journey to becoming, your story of becoming an, an activist in this area. So um, as, as I got more involved and let me I'll give you a little background about my story because that's a question that often came up at the legislature um some of the more curmudgeonly old guys who were always very suspicious of why we were there and what we were doing would say you know what are you getting out of this why are you here don't you care what your adoptive parents think about this won't they be upset and my my personal experience was I was adopted into uh, a two-parent home. They, wonderful people, hardworking, devoted parents. Uh, and, and in their generation, it was a very different process. Basically, they had a home study. The social worker came in. They said, you seem like nice people. Dad, you've got a job. Mom, you keep a clean house. Here's your baby. And, and have a great life together. Nobody understood anything about attachment theory. 
Nobody understood anything about trauma and loss. Nobody understood. There, there's so much that had, has changed since then, and so many great resources are now available to adoptive parents that um, I hope your listeners will take advantage of. But that's that's kind of my framework. It was it was assumed that nurture would triumph over nature. We were assumed to be blank slates, and I think this is still kind of a modern myth, though that that adoptive parents go into it believing my love will conquer all. And love is amazing and it's wonderful and it's powerful. But, and, and I, I want your listeners to hear me right on this in several important ways. It's not enough. That's a harsh truth. That's a harsh yeah. truth. And, and the reason I say that is, uh, loving someone doesn't necessarily mean you're equipped to understand the differences in how you're wired and how your child is wired. Uh, one thing I've said to the legislature is, I love my family. They will always be my family. But the weird thing about being an adoptee is your family are not your ancestors. They're not your tribe. And so from the moment that you're adopted, you really have two sets of parents from the get-go, and you will always have two sets of parents. Whether you know whether, them or not, whether you, whether you know them or, not. them or not. And the more we understand about the power of genetics, the more we see it. it took my mom, oh gosh, when, how old was I when she said this? My older sister had a son, and when he was about six or eight, the lights came on for her because she said, you know, she, he is so much like your sister. And, and the, the power of the gene pool that they were both swimming in really just was right up there in front of her face to face. And I think it, it set her back. I think it was kind of hard on her. Um, but uh, in a graduate level course I took, and this is, there's no way to be exact about this, but I think psychologists estimate that uh, it's really about 65 nurture and 35 nature. And if you come into it thinking that you're going to be able to reshape or reform or somehow uh, influence that 35% nature, you need to, you need to step back and give that a hard look. And you need to prepare yourself as a parent to be ready to flex to that nature that is not wired like you are. Um, I, I have memories of really growing up believing that in certain ways I was just crazy because of the responses I got from my parents that, you know, they didn't have to say anything just the way they looked at me or the non responses I got when I would say something that felt totally normal or tried to express a need in my not really great way as a kid. <laughs> um, the, the message I grew up with was, it, it, was, it was mostly nonverbal, but it was kind of like, well, that makes absolutely no sense. Uh, we're doing it this way. And you start piling those things on, and it really takes some emotional and psychological savvy to um, move into the task of being an adoptive parent. It's not going to be all nurture and no nature. 
How do you think things are different today for uh, new adoptive parents today as opposed to when your parents were in that position? You know, there are so many wonderful resources out there about things we know about brain science, um, things we understand about trauma and how to address trauma in children, things we understand about attachment and bonding, identifying your child's attachment style. If you're adopting as an infant, it's a little different than if you're adopting from foster care. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of adopting from foster care. I think that there's, there's a real um, purity about that spirit, that you're providing a home for children who clearly need them, as opposed to, and, and hear me right on this, but um, I, I've seen couples who were peers of mine and even younger friends who kind of got lost in what I would call got to get a baby syndrome. And it, it almost blinded them to the focus long-term being on the benefit of the child. It's absolutely normal and natural to want to build a family. And I applaud that. And there are a lot of people in the world would love to give who are pursuing adoption. So in no way am I, um, uh, condemning adoption as an institution. But uh, in, in terms of what's available today, I really encourage people several important points. One, um, reasons not to adopt right now. And some of these may be hard to hear. But um, one, if you are trying to replace a child that was miscarried, this is not the time to adopt. I've heard, let me just say something on that. I've heard that, um, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, no child should be born with a job, with a job description. Ah, so having a job to heal the parent is just a little too much to put on a baby. Exactly. Particularly without telling them the rules of the game emotionally. Mm. Um, two, if your desire is to, to basically just look like a normative family, or recover from some sort of um, inadequacy over infertility, this may not be the time to adopt. Infertility is a big deal and it's a deep wound and it's, uh, it's an emotional loss for the parent. And as a parent, I believe you need to have the emotional bandwidth to be ready to absorb the emotional losses of your baby. And if you aren't at least a fair way down the road with infertility um, and how you're managing that, that's, that's again, putting your child at a deficit um, in terms of what you have to give them. Not necessarily that something that stops you from adopting, but, but look at where you are in that process internally um, with yourself and with each other. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, no child should be born into a shrouded home. Um, that is grieving. Um, and I can attest in my own journey that I had to do a lot of healing from infertility with therapy and being willing to feel the feels before I felt like I could um, be joyous. Because as we say in, in infertility, um, adoption doesn't resolve infertility. It resolves parenting, but it doesn't resolve infertility. You, ha you still have to do that work alongside um, as part of the journey. Yeah, and in, in uh, I've, I've I know of stories where the the child, and I don't think any of it was intentional, but because people had not done that work, 
the child became the symbol of what the parents could not create. Um, or or it, it got kind of the blame from the fertile parent. Uh, there, was, there was almost a resentment there of, well, wait a minute, I like baseball and you like art. If I'd had my own kid, you'd be like me. Right. That sets and up for you, a lot of dysfunction. Yeah. And, and you've got you've to be ready to be able to flex to who your child is, not who you want them to be, because it probably isn't going to be quite the same thing. Yeah, there's no guarantees of a mini me in any scenario, but especially <laughs> even in biological families. Right, right. And the biggest thing I would say is just avail yourselves of the many, many great resources um, about effective adoptive parenting, brain science, attachment theory. Those are really three of the big keys. And four, now that I've said all these horrible, scary things, um, relax. Mm-hmm. You know, kids are resilient. <laughs> we're going to make it most of us. Um, there are always bumps and conflicts and things that you would have with or without adopting. And that's just part of being a family. Uh, and, and if you're acting out of love and communicating clearly and age appropriately, uh, thing, things overall, I think can be really, really great. There's uh, transracial and international adoption is a whole different category in terms of identity and uh, mirroring, that's something that, you, that all adoptees lose in an adoption. If there's no one in the world who looks like you, um, that's a big piece of identity formation and probably something we don't have time to get into here. But those are, those are some initial thoughts. I like that fourth point about relax because you're not going to get it all right, but you're going to get enough right. And I, I think the point that... Um, you can make lots of mistakes with tactics and strategy as long as your orientation and like your view is along this truthfulness, transparency, working through my own stuff um, and seeing things how they actually are, not how we wish they would be. If, we, if you've got that orientation, you can make a lot of mistakes in the little ways, but that orientation will kind of carry you through the love and the, the, um, through the bumps and things like that. Yeah, I, I, as you were talking, the, the metaphor of flying an airplane came in that um, you, you basically, the, the first time I flew in a small airplane with a friend, he, the, here's how he described it to me. He said, uh, well, you've got the goal. Here's the city that you're headed for. And you get up in the air and the wind blows you around and you get off course. And it's basically a sideways skid most of the way there. But somehow you find the airport and you land. <laughs> uh, but it's it's not an exact science by any means. Absolutely, and and there is no there there. I I'm, my kids are on the verge of being adults, and uh, we're not the airport's not in sight yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the destination. Nice. nice. <laughs> so let's talk again about um, what are some ways that adoptees are discriminated against? Why is there even a need for activism for adopted people? You know, uh, that's a really interesting question, and the use, I struggle with use of the word discrimination when it comes to adoption, because to me that implies some sort of intent, Um, and I'm not sure that when lawmakers sat down to write unjust laws, they they said, okay, how can we tilt this toward uh, making adoptees feel discriminated against? But the outcome really was the same. 
Point and two. yeah, and and so uh, in a very practical way, I think. Let me let me put it to you as a non-adopted person and to your audience, those of those who are not adopted. How would you feel if you decided to pursue your genealogy? And in order to do that, you had to go to a juvenile court judge and prove to them why you were worthy to know where you came from. And once you prove that, possibly have them appoint a third party intermediary who you had to pay to do the search for you in order to get permission from other adults to release their names to you. I would not like that at all, especially if my friend over here has no difficulty doing this at all. No cost, no hurdles. Yeah. And, and that's the world adoptees in a, a good, uh, you know, 30 states, really, really about almost 40 states are still in, in the United States that, um, this, this notion that one, as adults, we can't handle the truth Two, as adults, once we find out the truth, we're not capable of managing those relationships or approaching those other adults with the tact that we hopefully were taught by our handpicked adoptive parents and Three, um, everybody's presumed innocent unless proven guilty, unless you're an adoptee. You're, you're presumed a home wrecker. You're presumed somebody who doesn't have the, the skills or the sensitivity, which is totally counterintuitive. Um, if I'm looking for a possible relationship with a mother I never knew or a father or a sibling I never knew, what would be the point of crashing into their lives and blowing up a possible secret. How does that benefit me? Mm. Good question. Yeah. So, so this is where, this is where I think the laws were short sighted. The people um, like a lot of adoptive parents look at the adoption on the front end, but they really haven't thought about it down the road. Um, another important question is how do I, how do I know that I'm not dating or about to marry my sister? And I've had people say, well, how often does that really happen? Well, it, it's happened enough that it's a problem. And my response to that is, so that would be okay for your adopted child to go ahead and date and marry their sibling without knowing it and produce children. Wow. All of that just from having things kept secret from people who that it most, uh, it, it affects so implicitly in their yeah. lives. And, and, and that, of course, points. And a few people have said, well, now you can do a DNA test. And I say, well, I'm glad you brought up DNA. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to ask you, um, we've had two big shifts in our lifetime, yours, yours and mine, with DNA testing and the internet, which kind of means is closed adoption even possible these days? How does that fit in with um, the advocacy work you're doing? Yeah, it's, it's really kind of a myth. I mean, there's, from a legal standpoint, I totally understand and support. There are people who adopt from foster care and, and the parents of the, of the children that they adopt from foster care have been proven to be a danger to those children and, and are a very real potential danger to those adoptive parents. 
those adoptive parents should never know where that child is, or maybe not till way down the road and lots of rehabilitation and change. They sh for the safety of the family, that should be a closed adoption. No question about that. Um, on the flip side of that, once those children become adults, they have the right to reach out to their family members too. And the same laws that protect non-adopted families uh, also protect adoptive families. Not always perfectly, but that's, that's the world we live in. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to DNA, the internet, those, those are huge changes. And they basically blow apart the myth that there's any secrecy in adoption. We've really hit the tipping point where enough people have done DNA tests that you can find almost anybody in the North American European um, realm, not so much in Africa and South America and Asia yet. And so this, this idea that sealed records somehow protects identities uh, is a myth. And ironically, uh, the whole the whole paradigm has been flipped on its head where now if I'm looking for you through DNA, if there's a good chance I'll get like a second, third, fourth cousin match and I find you by going sideways through three or four families going, hey, do you know anybody who might have given up a baby back in 1965? And that's not very secret. You know? Right. It's almost like it takes what, if it were a legitimate process, you wouldn't have to have these sideways surprises for people who did something, you know, 40, 40 years ago or whatever, and um, had the shame and the secrecy on them. And if, if it was all open, that wouldn't have to happen that way. We've made it, you have to go through it, um, uh, awkward means to get this. Yeah, and there's usually an aunt or a cousin or somebody who knows the story and hasn't been talking about it. Um, whereas now, if you have, if adoptees as adults have direct access to their records, it allows them to make a discreet approach to a parent and have a quiet conversation uh, with that parent and allow them some time to adjust, allow them some time to tell family members if they haven't, and that's a mix. Um, the people in our group who find family have ranged everything from, you know, the two birth parents were deeply in love. They just couldn't keep the baby. They got married. They produced other full siblings. Um, one of them owns a chain of restaurants down in Texas. And the, the guy, the adoptee, stood up in his, in his full brother's wedding. Wow. Um, this awesome is story. Two people who found mothers who were in mental institutions and had been raped <sighs> and sort of had the capacity to understand who this baby was coming back to them sort of had the capacity. There were other mothers who were in mental institutions that once their child found them, they got better. So that not knowing becomes part of the illness almost. Yeah. Moms in our group have said, you know, every, Every year on my birthday, I cried for, on, on my child's birthday, I cried for three days. Mm. But now that, now that we're reconnected, I've lost 25 pounds, a weight is off my shoulders, my secret is out, and I've been able to move on with my life. Mm. Um, and that's a really important distinction. Uh, the fact that something might be painful to revisit doesn't necessarily mean that it's harmful. And in most cases, it's actually really healing.
Yeah, I think Angela Tucker said, um, for adoptive parents, what's most fearful is the knowing, but for adoptees, what's most fearful is the not knowing. Right. Because you can, you can process the truth. Yeah. Uh, Ron Nidham, who is a therapist that has done a lot of study and work around adoption, has a great phrase. And uh, it goes like this. He says, any news is good news because it's real news. Mm. It's not about finding a happy story or a happy ending. And it's so um, normal for a parent to want to protect their child from an unpleasant story. And, and yeah, you want to unfold that age appropriate and emotional capacity appropriate, if that's the case. But uh, I guess I would urge uh, adoptive parents and prospective adoptive parents listening to this podcast to consider what are your stereotypes of birth parents? What are your assumptions about them? Uh, do you assume you're a better parent than they would have been? had they had the resources to parent their child? That's a huge question. Because in many cases, that has not proven to be true. Wow, there's so many other things I'd like to explore with you, but we're just about out of time, Rich, and we may have to have a part two at some point. But I want to ask you the um, question I ask all of my guests, which is, what is your, and maybe you've already told us this, but I'll give you another chance if there's something else unsaid. What is the best piece of advice you have for adoptive parents about the long view? You know, this, this seems really simplistic, but I think the answer is built into the question approach it with the long view. I love that. <laughs> Adoption is not an event. It's a journey. Yes. And I, and I think you, you make me remember that to adoptive parents, it often looks like a one shot, one time deal. It, it had something that happened, but that's not necessarily the case for how adoptees feel about it. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, I think many adoptive parents, <coughs> and again, rightly so, because it's not easy to adopt. Um, so I, I've seen so much joy. This is they're, they're mine now. This is our baby. We're going to celebrate Gotcha Day. Uh, that may be my second biggest piece of advice. Do not ever, ever, ever have a Gotcha Day. Um, <laughs> yeah, tell us why. I think I know, but tell me why. <clears throat> you want to celebrate a birthday? That's great. Um, adoptees who are willing to let themselves feel the feels and think deeply enough about it. Once they understand, uh, I'll, I'll use this illustration really quickly. My dad used to say in his, in one of his many less emotionally aware moments, he would say, well, you cost us $10 and you've been worth every penny. Youch. And now, and it was a joke, you know, uh, but not a, not a great joke for an adoptee. And uh, some parents may be going, oh my gosh, $10, that's fantastic. You know, they just paid a record fee to the state as opposed to thousands and thousands. But think about now the, the money goes up. And as the money in adoption goes up, the sense of commodification on the part of adoptees also goes up. And, and kind of the sense of, Look at all we paid for you. Look at all we've done for you. Look at all we've sacrificed for you. Therefore, it's your job as the adoptee to sacrifice your identity and your heritage 
um, because you owe us because of how much you cost and what we invested in you. Mm. And that's that the gotcha day becomes a symbol of what all that is about. It's the day we acquired you as opposed to here's the day you were born. And I know it's another one of those things that often has good intent. We're celebrating your adoption. It's a beautiful thing. The way it lands with many adoptees is it's, it's a phrase that's a symbol of our commodification. How would family day strike you? Um, That's interesting. It's way better than Gotcha Day, <laughs> that's for sure. And and I'll just say, I would in have our, to think about that. In our family, we didn't really feel like we needed anything besides the birthday, so that has yeah. been a thing for us. I I could go back in my journals and find out what day that hap- those events happened, but they're not like in my consciousness. Yeah, there. Uh, when I looked at when I finally got my records and looked through them. Uh, and, and by the way, I, I, I did it through court order after finding out that my birth parents were deceased. And uh, thankfully, the, the culture has changed at the vital records. But the woman who gave me my birth certificate was hostile about it. She said, how did you get this? This isn't real. It's missing the stamp from the court. I'm calling the court right now. She was acting like they were her records. And in a sense, she was custodian of them. But she, she was invested in her... Um, position as defender of the secrecy. And it sounds like um, she treated you as though, though you were a child. And I think it's interesting. We don't actually have a word for an adult adoptee. We have to call them. When we say adoptee, we think of a child. We have right. to say adult adoptee when we're talking about somebody who's an adult. I, I had a, uh, uh, when I was, uh, uh, the Denver Post did a story years ago when I was active at the legislature and they came to my place. It, it ended up on the front page of the paper. And they sent a photographer to my place and I opened the door and uh, the photographer said, you know, I'm here to take some pictures of an adoptee. And he was looking down at my knees. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what does that, what does that say about our assumptions of the word? Of the word um, another, and that's another thing about sealed records. They we're perpetual infants. We're perpetual children having to go back to the juvenile court to plead our case about why we're worthy to find things that other adults can find online. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll need to do this again because there's so many more things I'd still like to talk with you about. Um, uh, Can you give us just, we'll put this in the show notes, but can you tell us how people can reach you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Our organization is called Adoption Search Resource Connection, ASRC. Our website is asrconline.org, all one word. And uh, we've got uh, email connection and phone number listing there under contacts at the bottom of the page. We have a Facebook page. Please follow us and like us. Uh, we post pretty wide number of perspectives, a pretty broad set of perspectives on adoption. Um, we're certainly uh, promoters of ethical adoption. You'll see a lot of not very happy stories about child trafficking and unethical adoption, but also great reunion stories, tips on healing resources, books, uh, films coming out, that sort of thing. So we really welcome uh, any and all questions and hope it can be a great resource for you. I have found it to be an excellent resource, so I vouch for it. I want to thank each of our listeners for tuning in and investing in your adoptions long view. 
May you meet everything on your road ahead with confidence, capability, and compassion. Thanks for joining us.